amphetamine, cocaine, ecstasy, GHB. It's a lot of money uh, as well. And I, uh, I sold drugs for quite a few years. And I also did some frauds uh, with a lot of money. And I, in the end, I traveled all around Europe and, and make deals. Armin Vestad is Youngblood's first international guest hailing all the way from Norway. He's been a drug addict, a dealer, and all-round criminal who was in the game for a decade till he did time in prison after being caught supplying guns used in a murder. I was delivering uh, the guns that were used for a triple homicide in Norway. Armin was lost and hopeless till someone showed faith in him and gave him a chance to apply the skills he developed in the underworld to business. Utilised his skills that they got from the criminal world and put it in a positive environment. Since those dark days, Armin's gone on to become a dedicated family man, a public speaker and a mental health advocate who's currently running from town to town spreading smiles. He's proof that it's never too late to change your life. And don't think you are a burden to anyone. If you think you are asking someone for a favour by helping you, you are not. You are giving them a gift. Most people want to help. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organization promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. Um, and how did you get into using drugs when you were younger? I didn't start until I was, I guess, 18, 19 years old. And it comes uh, when I was uh, trying to fit in in the gang. And, uh, um, and the gang, my friends, the doormans, where I worked as a doorman at a nightclub, they used drugs from time to time. So I, I just adopted the culture in, in this particular uh, among my friends. And what did you like about doing drugs and partying at that time? I felt alive. I felt um, happy. Uh, and uh, I felt um, uh, in the middle of the attention. And I think that was also something that I had seen for, for a long time. So did you feel like you were really searching for an identity at that time? Like to, to find out who you were and be accepted? Yeah, searching for my identity. And I I didn't fit completely. How quickly did it escalate and your drug use? How quickly did it get out of control? Was this something that you were doing for years before it became a problem or was it a problem pretty quickly? I would say I lived a double life for quite a few years. Um, after I was finishing uh, high school and uh, starting on college and university, I, I had a normal life. I, I wor uh, worked as a doorman. Uh, I established my own company and I studied and had a normal family. But uh, in, the, in the weekends, I did some uh, drugs, but it, was, it, was not, it wasn't because of the drugs itself. It was more like the, 
the criminal um, environment because it was a lot of money in there. So I would say I was more addicted to the money and the criminal world than I was to the, to the drug itself. Uh, the drugs was coming as a natural uh, extension, I would say, from the criminal life I, I lived. That makes sense. So through your work as a doorman, you met people that were involved in crime. You saw they were making a lot of money and that there was an opportunity for you to get in on that. Well, the first the first persons I met in this um, in doorman environment, uh, I, I don't think they were criminals, but they would like to take they like like to party and some taking ecstasy, some take um, amphetamine. And uh, um, but when I was moving to a bigger city, I, I met um, people that also had more of a criminal behavior, I would say. So do you find that you got really into the excitement of all that? You found that enticing, the, the danger around that sort of lifestyle? Did you find it was more alluring than the family life, the, the quiet life that you'd already experienced a bit? Yeah, I would say that. I think I found a bit of that um, craziness, I would say, in the criminal world. And um, when I was in this um, new environment of a lot of criminal friends, uh, we didn't see that what we did at the time as very, very dangerous. Uh, and I had adopted everything in that culture as well. How far into it did you get before it started to become a, a real problem? And what sort of things were you doing? What were you, what were you selling? What were you using? I was using um, drugs that took me up in, in a way, gave me good mood. I Amphetamine, cocaine, ecstasy, GHB. It's a lot of money uh, as well, and I I sold drugs for quite a few years, and I also did some frauds uh, with a lot of money. And I, in the end, I traveled all around Europe and and make deals. It was funny for uh, I would not say funny, but it was uh, a positive experience. I would say maybe the three four years until I was twenty five years, um, and after that, uh, my everyday life was harder to live because the drugs were taking over, taking more manual control. I started to fall um, much lower and I got into prison many times. And I even ended up uh, being uh, uh, considering taking my own life when I was sitting on, on the prison cell in, into the millennium year 2000. And how did all of that change your personality? What kind of person did you find that you became through that life of crime and all the drug use? Oh, that, I guess that was the most terrible part because when I was 18, 19 years old, I, I remember I saw people taking drugs and uh, especially people that have been um, taking drugs for years. I saw them on the street and I have to say that I, I didn't like uh, what I saw, and I thought I would never be like this, yeah. never. Um, but, but you know, um, when time goes and you start to be a part of it, you also move your boundaries and your borders to what's acceptable. Yeah, totally. At the end, I also found myself uh, stealing from stealing um, items and, and 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 goods just worth almost like a few pounds you know and and that would be absolutely uh, outrageous to think 
just five or six years before that. I just went for the big money and the big bucks at that time. But now I, I completely changed my behavior and the way I look at the world and the way I look at myself. Yeah, so it takes a long time to get this self-esteem back on track again. So it sounds like you had to totally compromise your values and compromise your yourself and then lost a lot of your self-worth and ended up thinking, who am I? And that you pretty much lost your life to crime and drugs. And then after such a ride where you're on such a high, you still ended up with absolutely nothing, which must have been very hard to take. What landed you in prison? Well, of course, when you're doing uh, living this life as a criminal and the police are chasing you all the time. And uh, I was in prison for many times, um, but uh, one episode that made me uh, get the long sentence uh, was because I was delivering uh, the guns that were used for a triple homicide in Norway back in 1999. So I was the delivery man for this homicide. And this is the most, one of the most um, written homicide cases in Norway. And the people that did it, they got lifetime, 20 years in Norway, that's life sentence. I think I had a couple of years. In Norway, we can get out two thirds of the time if you behave correctly. And I, I started my rehabilitation, I would say, uh, inside this prison this time. And how did you feel about that crime when that happened and you realized that you'd supplied those guns and that that triple homicide had happened? How did you see that at that time? Well, the first, I have to be completely honest. The first I thought was, what? Now I have to hide everything I have of uh, criminal activities. Where is my drugs? Because I knew at the moment that this person I sold the weapon to she would um, tell who she was, uh, who she bought it from. So the first thought was, save my own skin. I didn't have, I don't have any thoughts about uh, the three persons that was killed at all. Uh, and after that, I tried to adapt my explanation uh, to the police and try to get avoid them. But in the, in that, in a, such a serious case, it's not possible to get out of the police uh, so they arrested me but i suppose you, you've been in the criminal space for so long that your sense of remorse had eroded and i imagine when you're in that world you are your top priority and making sure that you stay out of trouble stay out of prison don't get killed is pretty much all that matters so hard for the general public to understand the mindset of a criminal at that level but is that how you felt that it was just about you looking after yourself and making sure that you got away with whatever you were doing? Yeah, I would say that. And in addition, I, I also thought that uh, because many people were involved in that particular case and many people turned their life around after being involved in such a serious case, but not me. I didn't turn it, my life around at that time. I, tr I tried to find a way that I can strengthen myself in the criminal environment and in, in the gang. So I was, um, I was using the media to reach out and tell my side of the story. And, uh, and after that, there was very easy for me to get money back from people that owed me money. Um, so my reputation as a criminal was strengthened 
And I also wanted to send a signal to my old world, my family and everything. And that was, don't try to get me back on the inside world. I know this life is very dysfunctional, but that's the only life I managed to live. So don't try to get me back. So you were hooked on the lifestyle of being a criminal as much as the actual drugs themselves. The drugs are kind of a symptom of living that lifestyle and you liked that fast life and sort of chose that over the alternative. Did you have children this whole time? Yeah, I did have um, uh, a six months. He was six months when I uh, left him in 96. And at that time, my boy was um, five, six years old. Do you have a relationship with him now? Yeah, I do. I do. So today he's 25 and he lives just a couple of kilometers um, from me. So when you had kids back then, they were just pretty far from your mind because all you could think about was the lifestyle you were trying to live? Yeah, yeah. And everything that didn't fit in my to fit into that world and everything that could give me complications with my feelings, emotion, and my dedication to be a criminal, I had to let it go. And I had uh, a younger brother and he was three years younger than me and um, he was a policeman. Uh, and and that's also something uh, strange or people think what same parents same uh, adulthood same childhood um, two opposite sides uh, of the coin how yeah it is it is and we are and today we are best friends you know and until we I was 20 we were also best friends but after that we have to go separate ways so yeah you separate yourself from the inside world and it's a parallel world you know on reflection how do you feel about the fact that you missed those years of your child's life i think that's the most hard part about it uh, know that you missed his first eight years old <laughs> eight years of his life and that's making makes me very sad and um but i cannot do anything else than try to be a a good father for him now uh, and try to learn from those experience and I now have a new family and my new kids are four and six and um, I know from my from my uh, own uh, from my from my own father he was he was absent I think uh, most years from my childhood so I think I have learned a lot uh, from him or from the situation with him and I tried to be uh, a different father but I have to say I was not a good father the first eight years of my eldest son. Well luckily you've got another shot at it and it's great to see that you've made good on that. It must have taken a lot of work to recover that relationship with your son and with your family after doing that. Yeah uh, it's it was it was um, the first first years of my rehabilitation I I worked a lot with that with my family and with my network and especially with my son. Uh, I had a lot of trust to, to rebuild. Um, and when I see it in see it in perspective, uh, in retro perspective, I, I would say that uh, many of the people I met on, on the way back, uh, they gave me a hard time because I I saw and I felt that people didn't have trust in me so i had to use years before before the whole society and trusted me again it's a lot to go through uh, and you say that you once overdosed 
five times in 10 days. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, and that was a period of my life where I was really, really um, used a lot of drugs because my body needed more to get the same feeling that I did before. And so I was taking this liquid drugs that's called GHB. And I even made it myself because I had I had almost like a factory uh, in different places where we were making these drugs um, and sell it with a huge, huge um, profit, of course. Um, and I had this in my refrigerator, refrigerator, and uh, I took it uh, to get to sleep, and I used it to get happy. I used it to, yeah everything, uh, every aspect of daily life. So it was just taking too much because that, uh, it was a small, small um, amount that could um, ruin. Um, yeah, it's very, GHB is very temperamental when you only need to take a tiny bit too much and you can end up having a, having a fit it's been a problem here in Australia before as well. Not so much now, but used to be on the, the club scene in Melbourne uh, a few years ago. It was uh, causing lots of problems there as well. So when you got out of prison, I believe you didn't stop doing crime initially and actually got arrested again, but then uh, you met a police officer who didn't treat you the same as you were used to being treated. Yeah, and that was... That was uh, this meeting with this particular policeman was uh, that was changed, I would say. Um, and I was used to getting handcuffs of the police. And uh, and and but this particular meeting with this policeman, he was sitting next to me, and and instead of arresting me, he was yeah sitting in my I would say dirty apartment with a lot of money lying there and, and uh, user doses and. And he just put my arm, his arm around me and, and he asked me if there was anything he could do to help me. And I've never experienced a policeman talking like this uh, because it's, it's like the enemy, you know, and, and uh, it, it, sh it shouldn't happen. It's uh, like North and South Korea should be friends. It, it's very hard and, uh, to imagine. And, and this policeman, he, he didn't. He put me into jail that night, I remember that, but he also said that he wanted to come to visit me the day after so we can have another chat. And uh, he did that and he kept his promise. And that was the first feeling that I felt that someone saw me, that I was interesting for someone else in the normal world. And that was the first time I felt I wasn't alone anymore. Mm. And I asked me, I asked myself the question, does it have to be like this? Is it possible to do anything to change? And I, I didn't know, my life didn't completely change the day after, of course. I, I kept on being a criminal. But then I get arrested again. And uh, I met several other people, uh, but huge, important, uh, played a huge, uh, important role in my my recovery and rehabilitation. So meeting that police officer when he was kind to you and he asked you if you were all right, was that the first time you remember someone doing that? And what did that do to your head? Yeah, at the time, the first, I, I think that was the first time. Um, 
I remember I was crying uh, and I felt that I was worth something. But it wasn't before I met this prison inspector, maybe three, four months later, that I really have the courage to start to talk about my rehabilitation. And she was the person that, yeah, she talked about, you should be, I know you like to help people. I've seen you help other prisoners in this prison. And I see that you're very creative. Uh, maybe you should uh, educate yourself as a social worker. And she stood up for my case and she was helping me with the transferring me from this uh, prison where I was sitting and into a prison with rehabilitation. So after getting to that department of the prison, I never stopped using drugs again. And that was in, in uh, May 2002. So I just stopped using drugs. But there was a lot of other things that had to be dealt with. So what do you think it was that allowed you to stop using drugs all of a sudden? What was it that changed in your mind or in your heart that made that possible? At the time I met this policeman and this prison inspector that helped me. So I, I have got, I've got to a place where I had a bit of a self-esteem uh, and self-confidence. So I knew that it was possible when they put me on this rehabilitation department in prison, I met other similar um, prisoners and they have the same attitude as I had. And no one was taking drugs inside this prison. So I, I just decided that I, now I want to quit because I think I hit the rock bottom. And I think it was some kind of survival instinct that made me take this decision. It's hard to explain, but I knew that if I didn't change now, I would probably, um, yeah. I would probably die or I could go to prison for the rest of my life or something would yeah. happen. So that, uh, that message finally got through to you at that point because obviously there were a lot of warning signs leading up to that, but you were able to push that out of your mind and ignore it or the pull of the drugs and your addictions was so strong that you couldn't really think of anything else. So after you made that decision, obviously it's not so simple to quit drugs as we well know, especially if you have a physical addiction. Did you have cravings for them how did you deal with that i had this kind of feeling for a couple of years after that i from time to time felt that i needed to use drugs but the thing i was pretty good at was that i was good for asking for help um, and when i did ask for help people wanted to help me and that's the that's one of the lessons i've learned yeah being vulnerable and see that just tell the truth this is too hard for me i need to talk about this i need help with this uh, a lot of people will help you so i i i build myself like a foundation i would say so the more and more of this foundation i built it was harder and harder for me to break it down so i could i remember sitting on my cell and after i get out of prison as well to consider uh, the risk by is it really worth taking the drugs just one more time because you that's what you want because you want to feel it one more time because using drugs the feeling of using drugs is of course good but it's all that comes after it's not that good so i was yeah i was calculating well if i do that now i will tear up everything i built up i didn't do that and um, so after a couple of years with distance to drugs that's what's that was all what I needed. Um, 
so I guess um, so more that, stronger too. That took a lot of strength of character and a lot of willpower to be able to shut that down. But I also love that you said that you finally asked for help and maybe you felt before like you couldn't ask for help. And as soon as you do that, and hopefully if you find some people that show that they care, then they're going to check in on you as well. So now it's like you have some accountability for your behaviors and people who are going to ask you about it. Um, I believe there was a woman. I believe there was a woman that you met who helped you a lot, got you into some work, and then you were able to get into the next part of your life. Yeah, for sure. And and because after I was taking my education, three years of uh, a social worker education, it was not very easy for me to get the job because I didn't have yeah my CV or <laughs> completely empty and. Uh, and, um, well, I, I, I mean, your CV, well. your CV was full. It just, uh, it wasn't the kind of CV that's appreciated by the business world as much <laughs> as the underworld. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. So it's a, it's a, it's a crime CV. Um, but <laughs> anyway, and, and if you took, if you took a Google search for me, everything about this murder case I just told you about was because I was going to the media, and so everything was on on it uh, and the Google. So. I had to tell um, every job application that I had that I, I was being a part of this case because everyone was Googling you. And um, I also had a two, 200,000 euros. I don't know how much that is in Australian dollars. That's a lot. But, um, that's a lot of money in Australia. Probably close to <laughs> half a million here. Yeah. I owed uh, 200,000 euros, uh, but I didn't have any... I didn't have anything to sell yesterday, <laughs> so shit. <laughs> just credit card. It was it was everything connected to the lifestyle I've lived, and I've maximized every credit card and um, the state. And um, I, I owed a lot of taxes. I never ever paid taxes if I had to. So it was a lot of things to settle up, and I was used to. I could use like seven thousand US uh, Australian dollars um, a day. Uh, and now I just had to manage myself with, yeah. It's a long way to fall from having endless money, endless drugs, and feeling like you're a kingpin to being 200 grand in debt and uh, not being able to scratch together a dollar. It's pretty hard to take that, I imagine. Yeah, because money was a part of my identity. And it's been from, from my early since I was 12, 13 years old, when I was um, bullied a bit from uh, from my school, uh, and when I used money to get inside the right inside with the right people, with the right clothes and everything, so money has followed me as a, a red line through all my life. Uh, so I, when I was sitting on on this uh, uh, employer's office and at the job interview, I was applying for the position as a deputy advisor for the public government in Norway <laughs> and you know it it was quite it's quite bold to apply for that job at all uh, but it was even more bold from party the woman that hired me as uh, as a debt consultant did she tell you why she was gonna hire you and give you a chance that was because of my background and especially because I had that uh, and I I, of course, had made an, an settlement with my creditors uh, at the time. So I was finishing with all my debt in, back in 2010. But I told her that I will use all my experience in meeting other people struggling with debt 
so I can get the right connection and trust with them uh, so I can help them the best possible way because I knew that money problem, uh, that people are very ashamed of that and it's a stigma connected to that. But I knew that if I could share my story about my money problem when I was meeting those people, I will get and gain the trust so they can open up. So I think that was the combination. And I, I remember she said something like this on the job interview. What have you learned from the life you have lived? So basically, what have you learned uh, from being a criminal? And what have you learned as a criminal that we can use in this public government to solve our mission? And that completely changed the game in the job interview. So instead of me being defensive and try to hide everything, I got the, the sense that she wanted me really because she gave me permission to talk about what I've learned and how I think that would fit into uh, this office to um, help people with that problems. Well, I guess you understood how much of a serious issue it was and how it makes you feel. And although going through pain and terrible struggle is so hard to deal with, it does give you a power if you're able to utilize it to be able to help others go through who are going through similar things because you just understand things in a way that no one ever could if they hadn't been through it themselves. So how did you find doing that work and where has it gone since then? How many how, how, how else have you been able to help people on your journey? Well, I worked as a debt advisor for about 15 years in the same position. Uh, or I, I have to say the last five years, I worked as a national leader for the public government in Norway for personal finances. So I was teaching other uh, people that are meeting people in financial difficulties, how they should treat them and how, how they should try to fix their economy in a way. So I, have, um, I was held in courses and public speakings in this position. So when I was finishing, I, I, I felt that in 2020, I felt that I have done my um, duty, I would say, to the public government. Uh, so I wanted to try something, something else. So six weeks before the pandemic hit the world, I was resigning. Um, I, so I left my safe and secure job in, in uh, the public government. Shit, probably uh, not, the best, not the best time for it. <laughs> no, you should. And that's what my wife said as well. <laughs> <laughs> so then I really needed to step up again because I was, I have to say that same feeling uh, come across again, the same feeling I had 20 years ago, the feeling of um, the feeling of not taking the right choices uh, and the feeling of being a bad husband, the feeling of being a bad father. Uh, what will the future brings to the world now when I was temporarily laid off because I was just working for four weeks and I had now to get unemployment money from my previous employer. And that was, that was also uh, a really uh, um, an expected experience. And, but I, I soon used what I've learned 20 years ago and took those experience from, from the shelf again. Uh, and, uh, and, and I now, yeah, the public speaking industry is, is getting back on track and, uh, and I got online presence. So I 
I, uh, I made the investment in studios. Uh, but also the pandemic gave me the gave me the possibility to think and reflect. Uh, and I think that this happened also for a reason, not the pandemic, not the pandemic, but the thing that I got temporarily laid off, because it gave me another tool in my toolbox, another experience which I can share again, because I now have recent experience in how it is to don't have much money. And I also uh, got the chance to think about what other good things can I do for society around me. What's important to you now at this phase in your life? And how else are you trying to contribute and l use what you've learned to help other people out? It's uh, in, in different areas, public speaking for the corporate world. My public talk is uh, called Why Brave Leaders Should Hire Ex-Criminals. Tell them why it's important that they hire ex-criminal and not and i also try to say that this is not some kind of charity project this could be your best employees ever and i'm going to describe the arguments in a way that they will understand and i will utilize these skills that they got from the criminal world and put it in a positive environment so i will try to at least get one of those persons to hire an ex-criminal after listening to me so that's one initiative and i believe you said that those those things that you are able to apply to normal life that you learn from criminality are loyalty work ethic effectiveness risk assessment and then interpersonal skills as well is that what you try to teach people or try to teach people that they should value in their own businesses yeah, I think as long as uh, uh, as uh, employers could forget for a time, for a, for a little second there, that this is an ex-criminal and try to convert those skills uh, into corporate world, they would see that they have a lot of skill sets that are needed now uh, in the corporate world. Um, so so that's, um, that's a few of the skills I think ex-criminals should have. And what about your running? When did you get really into running and what sort of uh, void did that fill in your life? Are you doing that tour? In 10 days. And that the running has played a huge role in my recovery for many reasons, I would say, because when you're used to sitting so much in prison, you are used to not taking your decisions yourself. So just, just to put on your shoes, running shoes and your laces and run whenever you want. It's an absolutely fantastic feeling of freedom. So I could start crying just by talking about it because you have to experience the feeling of freedom. So I have running high <laughs> before I start running. Uh, and uh, you can imagine what happens after I run 10K. So. I have participated in Ironmans and in, uh, in marathons and uh, triathlons. Only aim is to get on the finishing line, but it gives me great, great joy to, to, to run. When you're doing your tour, how's that going to work? Tell us about that. Tour the Wave, it's, it's, a, it's a run and smile event. Uh, last year, I was struggling a bit for my unemployment myself. So I, I was thinking, well, at least now I should try to run for a long, long time. So I decided I would run from my city to another city, which is 200 kilometers. Far out. It's a long way. Five, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but over five stages and five days. Okay. And I also thought, well, while I'm out running, why can't I, I can smile to people. I can try to be friendly because if you smile to people, then you will get the smile back. And that's if you say hello to people, that's most awesome. likely you will get a hello back. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. <laughs> and I did that in April this year. And now I'm starting another tour the wave. And now I'm running from my home city to my uh, city where I was born in Molde. Uh, and that is even longer. And I am also doing that on five stages. And with me, I have reached out to different mayors of the cities I'm passing when I'm running. So they are going to be a part of my tour the wave and the smile and run event. That's great. And uh, I'm also, also going to do different things uh, along the way. Uh, and I'm going to run with schools and I'm going to visit uh, patient groups, vulnerable groups in society. Uh, and I'm also trying to get people to follow me on uh, Instagram and runners especially so they could also do the same. Smile and say hello to everyone they meet. Where can people follow you on Instagram? That's on um, my name, uh, Arman Vesta, but I also have a group and, uh, which I have created on Instagram that's called The Friendly Runners. So I'm trying to create the community of friendly runners, of course, uh, that could help me in this mission with creating, a, would say, a, a more global human warming when I meet people along the course. That's awesome. What would you have thought, do you think, when you were in the height of your drug use and your criminality to know that 20 years later you'd be running from town to town smiling and waving at people? It's a pretty amazing turnaround, isn't it? <laughs> from yeah. a hard, from uh, a hardened it, criminal to the happiest man in the world. <laughs> Love that. It is. It's really, really a change. And uh, and that's all because I met people that has incredibly um, skill sets in meeting people in crisis. If the policeman at the time didn't return the next day visiting me at the prison cell, I would close the door to openness, I would say, for forever. So it's so important that you meet people that has these skill sets. Mm. Uh, and uh, you have to. I, I was a criminal and I was not easy to like. Removing my mask. And now try to smile to everyone I meet. It, it's um, I have to say I love it. I have to say I love it, and it shows it's possible for everyone. Because if I manage to turn my life around, I think it's hope for everyone. And I would say the most important role uh, advice for me to others is find one person that you can trust and try to open up, and don't think you are a burden. To anyone if you think you are asking someone for a favor by helping you you're not you're giving them a gift most people wants to help beautifully well said man that's such a good point to make and you're also a great example that one conversation can change your life like you said if that policeman hadn't shown you some kindness then you would never have gone down this path and so many good things have happened as a result of that. So it seems like part of your life now, which is very important, is being that person for someone else because, you know, in just that one moment of talking to someone or listening to them, making them feel seen, you can put them on a different path that's going to give them a better life. And that's just an incredible power that we all have to be kind. Yeah. And I also think that this 
this vulnerability to dare to be vulnerable, I would say that's a superpower. But it's not easy because you are afraid of the other person that doesn't understand you. And that's the most tricky part about it because if you are a helper or you are a person that wants to be and uh, positive, uh, have a positive influence on people that are struggling, you have to, you can't just say that you understand how they feel. You have to, they have to really feel that yeah. you understand it. It's not, so, so that's the tricky part. Yeah, it is tricky. And I love what you said about the fact that if you are struggling, you're not a burden and you shouldn't see yourself that way because we know that viewing yourself as a burden so often leads to the worst possible outcome, which is suicide. And that, in fact, our own thoughts about how people are going to view us and receive us are often wrong. And if we are brave enough to reach out to the right person, they can give us a reaction we never expected, which actually we needed. Uh, but it does take real courage to bite the bullet and speak up and tell someone how you're really feeling because it's easier in some respects to just glaze over it and keep pretending like you're okay until you can't handle it anymore. I totally agree with you. It's not easy. And you need to find that person and you, have, you might have to, to look for it for a time as well. Uh, it's not easy to open up to someone you don't trust and you don't think will understand. So, yeah, the one person could, but you can meet him everywhere. That's the point. I met him in the basement in my apartment, five minutes with the policeman. That's what, that was what stakes for me. And have you been able to, or how are you able to fully disconnect from your criminal life? Because I can imagine that some of those people that were in that circle tried to pull you back in or... Uh, did you manage to completely cut off contact or how did that work? Because that's not easy to do. Yeah, I did. Um, it was different phases. And uh, I think it was three, four years after I had some kind of need to talk to people that has been in recovery as well, just to discuss different topics and to see how they, how they manage. But I also had a phase where I, uh, I, I tried to find the people that I'm, been friends with in the criminal in my criminal period and i saw that they they didn't look good at all so i i don't think it was much of a pressure to get back but i had one time a serious thought about getting back not getting back in the sense of being a criminal but when i was struggling with my debt it was so hard Mm. Uh, because I was after with my payment plans and everything. So I considered calling one of my old friends to get a job so I can get quick money. Uh, or I, I also considered calling my mother to ask for a loan so I can pay after the settlement I was missing. And at that time, I think it was five, six years since I got out of the crime, I was strong enough to ask my mother for help instead of calling my old friends because I knew what would happen if I did that. One easy job, it could be at least two, three maybe, and then I would be back. But this year... But that was, so that was self-awareness. So you'd, you'd, for the first time, you'd developed self-awareness and you valued yourself enough to not make that choice because you knew then what was going to happen if you if you made that decision and then you were strong enough not to do it but that takes a lot as 
anyone trying to leave that kind of life is going to be faced with those challenges afterwards. Why do you think giving is better than taking? It's a hard question, but I think giving is some kind of natural need that we humans have. We love to be of use for others, and we are social species that we love to be in interaction with others. So I think it's um, it's in our biological needs that we can see that we are useful for others. Yeah, I totally agree. And what would you say to people who say that it, it's too late for them to change and they're too far gone? I knew people that have been 40 and 45 that also have changed their lives. So it's possible to change their life whenever the age, but I know it's more and more difficult and the elder you get. But the most important part is to find that person that could help you uh, to get out of, of uh, crime or the life you're trying to change. Great, man. Well, thank you for telling your story today. It's an incredible one. It's one that is pretty rare for someone to go through so much like you have and come out the other side of it and be okay and not just be okay, but be someone who's capable of helping others and going through a complete transformation. It's just, uh, it's an incredible story and it's beautiful to watch you now and see how much joy you get out of the freedom of going for a run and uh, waving and smiling compared to being a hardened criminal who was uh, at rock bottom and didn't see a way out. So I think it's an incredible story of hope and uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Thank you for letting me on the show. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Youngblood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. You can sign up to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.